Hey guys, it's Morgan. We have an amazing interview for you today and it's only part one. I kid you not. It was such a crazy tale. So, so many different stories that just really paint a vivid picture of the horrors that have been orchestrated by the Chinese communist party that we had to break up the episode into multiple episodes. So this is part one with Jennifer Zung. I'm going to read you her bio so that you have a good understanding of just how wonderful this woman is. And the fact that she took the time to talk with us is a really big deal. Okay. So thank you to Jennifer. This is her bio. It says, Jennifer Zung fled China in 2001 for Australia. Her memoir, Witnessing History, offers a hair-raising first-person look at China's brutal concentration camps and should be compulsory reading for politicians and journalists as well as younger generations. Since the publication of her book and the release of Free China, Jennifer has been invited to dozens of cities and venues to speak at her about her experiences, including U.S. Congress, European Parliament, Swedish Parliament, University London, London School of Economics, Imperial College London, Society of Women Writers, NSW Incorporated, Australia, etc. Jennifer's stories were also covered by numerous media outlets around the world, including the New York Times, NBC, ABC, the Los Angeles Times, the Australians, Sydney Morning Herald, Channel 9 in Australia, The Age in Australia, Le Temps in Swiss, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Voice of America, Financial Reviews, South China Morning Post, Big Hollywood, Radio Free Asia, The Epic Times, New Tang Dynasty TV, Sound of Hope Radio, and more. Okay, so Jennifer was born in China in 1966. She went to university in 1991 and got a Master of Science in Geochemistry and worked in the Development Research Center of the State Council of the PRC, the People's Republic of China, until 1996 as a research fellow and then worked as an investment consultant. She began to practice Falun Gong in 1997. After her release from Beijing Female Labor Reeducation Camp, she fled to Australia in September 2001 and was granted refugee status 22 months later. In January 2019, Jennifer obtained an EB1 visa, it means Extraordinary Ability Green Card, in the United States for her extraordinary abilities and her national and international acclaim. Jennifer currently lives in Greater New York and continues her effort to spread the truth via writing, reporting, creating YouTube videos, and blogging. This woman was a slave in forced labor camps in China, forced labor re-education camps, and she's going to tell us all about it. So let's get started. It's a pleasure to meet you. If you don't mind, I mean, we could just get started if that works for you. Yes, yes. Okay, so we are recording now, all right. Now, Jennifer, thank you so, so much for joining us on this podcast. Everybody listening is just fascinated by the stories of people who have uh, been through trials and tribulations and they came out on top thanks to the resilience that they had on the inside, especially. And your story inspires me so much personally as well. So if you don't mind, how about we just start out with uh, a summary? Who are you and where'd you come from and, and what do you do? Uh, basically, my name is Jennifer Zheng. I come from China. I actually uh, was born in the year when the Cultural Revolution started. So I grew up during the Cultural Revolution in China and my family was persecuted very badly. And then after the Cultural Revolution ended, I went with my father to a, a relatively bigger town to have my high school education than I was admitted by the uh, one of the top universities in China, which is Beijing University. So I studied seven years and got a master's degree in geochemistry. And then I worked for the development research center of the state council. So that is the highest, uh, you can say, pa a government policy consultant and a research uh, body in China. And then uh, after I gave birth to my daughter uh, in 1992, my health was totally ruined because of a medical in incident. I lost a lot of blood. I almost died. Then I lived, uh, uh, I stayed in the hospital for years. I couldn't work. I couldn't look after my daughter. 
And then several years later, I was introduced to an ancient mind-body-spirit practice called Falun Gong or Falun Dafa by my family. So I took up this uh, practice. I did it uh, daily for almost a month. And then I found all my health problems were, were, were gone. And I feel like I uh, regained my life and I was reborn with a new vitality, new energy. I went back to work, Every, everything worked so well and everyone in my family was so happy. And then 10, two years later, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP suddenly launched an overwhelming persecution against Falun Gong. I think mainly because of its popularity. And since that, I was arrested four times and then put into a labor camp for one year. And after I, I was persecuted to death uh, during that one year. So after that, I escaped in 2001 after I was released from the labor camp to Australia to seek asylum and I was granted refugee status by Australian government and I lived in Australia after that for 10 years I wrote a book both in English and in Chinese about my experience back in China in the labor camp which is called Witnessing History One Woman's Fight for Freedom and Falun Gong. And uh, after that, I mainly have been worked in the media industry since then, uh, first in Chinese, you know, language section. I worked for some overseas independent Chinese media. And then starting from last year, I think after the pandemic, because I saw the huge suffering, the world is suffering because of the cover-ups of the Chinese Communist Party. So I set up an English uh, channel, like you are saying, uh, Inconvenience Truth by Jennifer Zhen on YouTube, and I started to do my own English language shows to tell the world about what is happening in China. Uh, I forgot to mention, and I, I came to the United States in 2011. So, so that's basically was my story up to now. Wow. And so what city are you in now in, in America? Pardon? Where in America are you located? Uh, in, in New York. Oh, yeah. very nice. I'm from upstate New York. I loved it very much. Yes. It's a very, beautiful state. Very, very if, you, if you don't mind, I'd love to start from the beginning. I mean, the Cultural Revolution, I we see a lot of similar behavior going on right now in America, uh, thanks to the American left. They're attacking American culture, heritage, history. Can you explain to our listeners what the Cultural Revolution was and the kind of impact it had on your family. Yes, actually, I think my family was impacted when my father, who was graduated from uh, a university, uh, he studied politics and the laws. And uh, because Cultural Revolution, and I think first started to uh, target uh, many kind of different persons they regard as the enemy of the nation or of the Chinese Communist Party. So intellectuals, um, one of them. So my father as an intellectual was targeted. So he was, you know, publicly uh, condemned he was actually dragged out from the hospital to be publicly humiliated. And my mother had to, you know, I was only one year older than my mother told me. She had, she had looked after my father who was, uh, you know, publicly uh, humiliated, uh, beaten up or that sort of thing. And he put me on her back and she had to put up this handwritten self-criticism uh, statement of my father, uh, a whole lot of them to put them in uh, at the night and the designated places by the party to criticize yourself, why you, you are wrong, why you became a part of the enemy of the party, that sort of thing. And then my father was relocated to a re very small, small uh, town called Hanwang, which had only 30,000 population. And my mother was separated from my father. So I was only four years old. And because my, my sister was born, so my mother couldn't look after both of us because at that time, everybody was 
paid very, very little. So we couldn't afford to, to hire somebody to help my mother. So I was sent to live with my father alone in that remote small town where my father was sent there to be re-educated, you, know, you can see by the workers. So during my entire uh, childhood, I couldn't even, you know, play like with other kids, like any other normal kids, because my parents worried. As a as a child of a you know family which is an enemy of the party, if I uh, to, uh, started fighting with other kids, they could uh, uh, say it's my family's problem. I, my parents could get get uh, you know affected because they say, oh, this is the party's enemy fighting back at the party. So I remember in those lonely, lonely long summer night when other children were playing, laughing outside. I shot myself in a mosquito net. You know, we lived in a very uh, isolated and uh, deserted, you know, uh, the bank of the river. So there were so many mosquitoes. So I, I had to hide myself inside of the mosquito key, net uh, to read books. And I, because I couldn't go out play with other children. So the most of my childhood time was spent uh, in loneliness. And the most of the time I was reading all sorts of books I could find. So that's basically how my family was affected. And for many, many years, my father and mother couldn't live together. So my, I lived with my father, my sisters lived with my mother, so our family were not together. So that's the situation in Cultural Revolution. Wow. Now, so so your your father, was he speaking out against the CCP? And what year was that taking place? I actually, you know, didn't know what he did exactly. And uh, I think only because he, he was a graduate from a university, he had some knowledge. I you know, what amazed, I think, they, you would be in my, my father already passed away in 2014. And in his entire life, when I was together with him, he never talked about any politics or any issues related to public politics with me. So I actually didn't know what problem he had, why the party was angry with him. I only remember, you know, when I was a child, sometimes, you know, and like I said, many classical uh, literatures, both uh, foreign and Chinese were burned as, you know, poisonous, gra uh, poisonous grass uh, classified by the CCP. So we could only read those little red books by Chairman Mao or whatever uh, the party allowed us to read. So because I'm a really book lover, so sometimes my father had wrote children's stories for me to read and uh, put it like in, in, make it like into a book. And whenever my mother found her, uh, found his writing, she would burn them all because anything you write down could become dangerous, could be something to be persecuted with, could be, you know, there's a, we, we have thought crime and you also have the maybe writing uh, crime, that sort of thing. So I remember every time when my mother burned my father's handwritten little stories, or sometimes I believe he also wrote maybe some essays or poems or whatever. My father's expression was so scary for me. As I could saw he was very angry, but he dared not to say anything because my mother was so worried that he would make some political mistake. So I feel so sad in the whole life. He never talked about any political issue with me. So I actually didn't know what he, what he thought about all these issues, all these things he encountered in life. As you know, in China, the party, the Communist Party encouraged uh, little children 
to report uh, about whatever your parents are saying in the family to the party to show your loyalty to the party. So it turned the family members uh, um, into enemies against each other. That's why families don't talk to families about whatever dangerous issues. So wow. I feel so sad that I just can't um, answer this question of yours. I, I remember the only time my, my, my father any uh, expressed something a little bit has a little bit relation to do with politics was when I was in high school, you know, in, in the last year we had we had to choose of, of our major, whether you want to study science or literature after you go to uh, university. So when I was going to make this uh, decision, my father said, you study science. Uh, and asked him why he said, whoever is the chairman or the president of the country, one plus one is always two. So you study science. So I understood he actually mean if I study literature, if I uh, write about an essay or political comments or something, it is very dangerous in China. But if I study science, one plus one is always two whenever who is the president. So he thought study science would be safe for me, but I think he would never have expected that I did become a master of science, but I ended up in jail as the as same, uh, you know, for, for practicing some kind of meditation to improve myself. So you never know in a communist country what kind of danger you would encounter. You think you, you are not studying literature, I'm not writing essays, I'm not criticizing politics, but I still was persecuted very badly. Yeah, that's a great lesson right there. And uh, a lot of us in America see that too now of, of science, something that we used to all be able to mostly agree on, uh, other than I think pretty much environmental issues. Uh, we all used to agree on it, and now it's being weaponized against certain political groups. Now, I think your parents' story is a testament to their love. I mean, your father was sent to a new location to be re-educated away from where your mother was. And so they stayed married. How did they communicate? How did they keep their love going? And, and was it just their deep love for each other to try and get through this and have resilience? Uh, how did they fight back against the CCP together? It's, it was very hard. I actually did a series of TV shows, which you can find on my channel, Inconvenient Truths uh, by Jennifer Zen. So the story of my father. They actually visited each other, you know, whenever they, on the, on the weekends or whenever they had a holiday or something. And my mother once did try to, uh, want to divorce my father because life was, too hard for her as a family of somebody who had some kind of problem. I, I was only maybe only five or six years at that stage. So my mother gave me a letter for me to hand over to my father after we arrived to my father's place. But as a little child, I was too excited. You know, I couldn't hide this secret uh, on, on the halfway. So I did, I gave that letter to my father. So my father, after he read that later, he carried me on his back. He walked back to my mother's place and he lied on the bed. I still remember he always had carried that kind of scary expressions. You can say no expression on his face, but that kind of experience always frightened me. So I didn't know how they uh, tried to negotiate with, uh, with each other. Anyway, my mother, I think, uh, took back her words about wanting to uh, uh, divorce my father. But yes, we did have very, very uh, difficult time. They tried to uh, visit each other and uh, it was a long travel. We took a lot of efforts, you know, Nobody had a car on those days, so we only rely on public transportation, which was very not reliable. We transferred our 
our you know, buses several times. And we, my mother was also relocated in a deep mountain and she taught in the primary school in a deep mountain. So we had to walk in the mountain trail for hours uh, till we reached her. So, so life was very, very difficult. But at that time, I think many Chinese people lived that way and anything you need, the approval of the government. I remember when I wrote my memoir, I wrote one sentence said, I moved to Mianyang with my father. And my editor, you know, she's an Australian. She grew up in Australia. She said, she thought I made a mistake by word selection. So she, she correct my, she changed my word father to parents. She took it for granted. If I moved from one city to another, I should move my parents instead of my father. So she said I made a mistake because I didn't understand as a Chinese the, different, the difference between parent and father. So I had to tell her all the story to, to make her understand uh, how different the society of China is from what Australians normally understand the family should live together, stick together. You know, after even after the, the, the revolution was uh, ended, but my father was, you know, uh, called back to the big city to work for the CCP again. My mother was allowed to join her to go with, with him. So my, my sister and I go, uh, went to the city with my father and my mother and uh, I have a, a youngest sister still, well, they were left behind and they continued to live in that remote small town for many, many years until I, until I was in a university. They, they, they were finally allowed to join my father in that relatively bigger city. So, so that was how hard life was. During that time, everything you know need a permission. If you don't have a permission to to move, you stay. That's yeah. This is how it was. Wow. Yeah. And so, considering that was your childhood, and you had your family ripped apart by the communist regime in China, the CCP, did you have animosity for the CCP growing up, or because of the education style there that was very indoctrinating, were you still in favor of the regime? What were your thoughts towards government as you came of age? Yes, of course, you know, when I, I was, when I was born, I, they, they, the CCP already took over the entire country. So all the textbook, all the literature, everything we received, all the information was about how great the party was. The great, the great chairman, leader, Chairman Mao saved us from the old evil society. And uh, we are now enjoying a good life because of the party, because of Chairman Mao. So I remember very clearly when Chairman Mao died in 1976, I was only 10 years old. And in, I think, grade four of the primary school, I really cried, I cried with my classmates. We all cried so terribly because we were told that if without Chairman Mao, we would suffer, go back to the old bad evil days. Sometimes we, we watch movies of old bad evil days of how people were treated badly by the old evil, you know, uh, ruling classes of the evil old society. So we all cried so terribly. We thought the end of the world had arrived and we would all suffer old evil society again. So we, we, we really cried so, so, so hard. I even didn't cry that hard when my own father died, to be frank. So, so we believed, I believed in everything the party told me. So when I was in university, my father wrote to me and very excitedly told me he, he can join the party finally because, you know, during the Cultural Revolution, he, you know, we, we talk about he was uh, uh, labeled as the blam, bad person by the party. So after the Cultural Revolution ended, because the party need to, uh, I think, lead his uh, specialty in, in, in law era because he became a top 10, I think, top 10 lawyers in his province, Sichuan province. 
So he asked, he applied to join the party and he was accepted and he became so excited. Finally, I think he thought after he became a party member, maybe he could gain uh, better treatment or whatever, uh, feel better about himself. So after I read his uh, letter, I was so, you know, because I always, you know, as many, I think, daughters in the world, uh, they all admire, admire and worship their fathers, you know, <laughs> me too. So when I uh, read his letter, I feel, oh, maybe this party is really great. It had, although maybe it had made some mistakes, little mistakes during Cultural Revolution, but it had corrected itself. It had allowed my father to join the party. So I also actually applied to join the party when I was in still in a university and I became the first CCP members in my class when I was in the third year of the university. So at that time, I still believed everything, virtually everything the party told us because we didn't have any other information, alternative information. Uh, so, so that's how, how I how brainwashed I was. I was. <laughs> and so, what does that mean to apply to join the party? Would it? Would you just become a member of the Chinese Communist Party? What is? What does that come with? Oh, you of course you need to uh, uh, write up a written you know application and give it to the. You know, every university, every uh, department have party branches. So you had in your application to the party branch and the party branch will start to observe you, to, to examine you, to test you, to, to maybe ask other people's opinions about you, to, to, to see if you are good enough to become a party member. When they see you are good enough, they were maybe first uh, ask you to become a reserve, some kind of uh, like a pre-member, uh, not, not a formal member yet for another year. So during that one year, you need to uh, regularly uh, write your thoughts report to the party to tell them how you think, how you think about this, part, uh, this party policy, how you are going to fight and ready to sacrifice everything of yours to the party. So you, you need to constantly write thoughts report to the, to the party and all, maybe the oh. party, you know, secretary were sick to talk with you once for a while uh, to, uh, to learn what's what is in your mind and they will ask us others you know your fellow colleagues your fellow classmates about how you behave and if they uh, after one year of observation and in, in your pre-party some kind of exam or test year so that's that is one year if they think you are good enough to be a party member they are allowed and there's a ceremony where you need to you know uh, raise your red face uh, your right face to uh, a vow you you will be lawyer to to the party for the rest of your life and you are ready to die for the party for the rest of life and you will never betray the party so there is a like a, a religious some kind of ceremony to go through and then you are a party member you uh, you are going to uh, you need to attend the party meetings of the party members regularly and you pay party due uh, monthly or whatever so if you the party think you are good enough maybe you can be re promoted to be a, become a party uh, secretary of a, a certain branch or this or that you have maybe a lot of more opportunities to you know get ahead in the society so so that's how the procedure is interesting and so do you get accepted after the year yes i was i became a former communist party member okay and so how old were you at the time you were in college how sorry how old were you uh, how old oh uh, i i think i was only not 18 yet when i entered the university and i when i graduated from uh, seven years after with a master's degree i was 25 so when i joined the party i was only 21 years years old wow okay so at that age you're joining the the 
Communist Party of China. Did you have career goals? Did women at the time, were you able to have career goals as a woman in communist China at the time? What, what did that look like? And what were your visions for your future? I think at that time, because Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong said something like women can hold up half the sky. Uh, uh, women are so liberated, uh, uh, living, having a good life in China. So on the surface, women are treated quite uh, like quite the same as male students. So when we had examinations, everybody get the same set of tests. Uh, you know, you if you uh, you score higher than boys, you you go ahead uh, of them. So on the surface, it seems that women are, are having are treated uh, like like the the same kind of de degree. But but actually, under I think. That's that's on the surface, but when you see the actual uh, picture, uh, most of the most powerful persons in the positions are still male figures, and uh, and after I think the so-called uh, one-child policy, many baby girls were killed, and uh, and uh, and many women actually young girls became prostitutes uh, after the so-called opening up and the reform to the outside world. So there were maybe tens of millions of prostitutes in China now. So you can't really see say that women's status had improved a lot. So I have a few questions on this. So what happened to lead to this massive influx of prostitution? When did that happen and why? I think because uh, that happened, I think, during maybe starting from the so-called opening up and the reform to the outside world. And uh, everybody and people you know, the then CCP leader Deng Xiaoping encouraged people to become rich. I think this, this is a very deep issue. You know, when the CCP took power in 1949, they told Chinese people that they would lead Chinese people into communism and everybody would have an equal uh, amount of happiness and everybody would enter the heaven of communism. So, so they actually confiscated all private property. They took over the land from landlords uh, and the businesses of business owners, factories in the city. So, so they took people's all private properties and they said they distribute them equally to everybody. So now everybody in China collectively owns everything. So, so in, in the countryside, people started to the, the so-called people's commune. So everybody eat together, work together, and you are not allowed even to cook at your home. But, and you know that kind of, um, system or a social system actually didn't work out and it had never worked out. So soon after millions, tens of millions, I think somewhere at least 35 or 45 even millions of people were starved to death at the end of 1950s and 1960s. And then it's 10 years of cultural revolution. So after the Cultural Revolution ended, nobody, I think virtually nobody in China actually still believe we can enter into communism tomorrow. So the CCP was des desperate to find a new uh, excuse for themselves to stay in power. So the new metro or, or the new uh, slogan for them now is now we allow a part of the part of uh, a part of the people in the society to become rich first. So economic achievement become, uh, you know, uh, the new, um, you can say, excuse or legitimacy or the base of legitimacy for the, for the CCP. And then because it encouraged everybody to become rich, you know, for some women who, uh, who lived in the countryside, who didn't have good education and uh, who didn't have 
connections in the city or with any party members or any people who had power. If they want to become rich quickly, maybe become a prostitute. Prostitute is is a very uh, quick way, easy way for them to 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 make quick money. And uh, on the surface, prostitution is illegal, still is illegal in China now. But there are so many, so many these kind of places where people can go and you know, as these young girls can make make money. I actually met a lot of such kind of women, girls, when I was in the labor camp, in the detention center, they were arrested. If they were found, they were caught, they got arrested, but still there were so many people doing that. The local police, they, if they arrest them, they, they ask for bribery money, they ask for money, and if you pay money, maybe the police won't arrest you. If you don't pay money, they arrest you. So everybody makes money through this industry. That's why uh, um, in the book of the law, it is illegal to practice sex industry in, in China, but, but the reality is there were tens of millions of such kind of women in China because they, they try, they, the Communist Party really encouraged people to run after money, and uh, and it's become a glorious matter if you can make money no matter what, no matter what kind of method you use to become rich. So everybody wants to uh, become rich and make quick money. I think that's deeply, they, they, they really want you to run after money and to run after, after material pursuit so that nobody would question its legitimacy. You won't think about the freedom of belief, freedom of speech, or, or freedom of whatever. So mm -hmm. they give you the free freedom to make quick money if you don't question the party's legitimacy. So that's a deep reason behind all of this. Yeah. That's fascinating. Now, now you mentioned the one child policy. Can you explain what that was? And did, did you have any personal experience with that or any stories? Yes, yes, very bad one. I think uh, somehow the CCP started to believe, oh, because uh, we had too many people in this country. That's why everybody is living in such terrible conditions. So they think we need to control, start control population. So I think it's starting from the end of 1970s, they started to implement this one child policy. So every family is, was allowed to have only one child. If you have more than one child, uh, you will be punished. Actually, you can't get uh, one more, more than one child because they'll need to have a, a permission or a passport or whatever uh, code to give birth to a child. If you don't have that code, then they, you, can't, you can't even go to a hospital, you know. So every, and if you live in the city, you will lose your job. If you live in the countryside, the party member in the, in the village will go to your house and take you to the hospital to do forced abortion. So sometimes even if after, I, I personally, heard a story from my aunt who worked in a hospital. Actually in her hospital, one baby boy was already born because, but because he wasn't the first child, he was the second child, he wasn't supposed to be born. So the nurse in the hospital actually carried this little baby with a tray and saw him in the, in the, in the they have a special dump, you know, kit for this, illegal children. So they killed that little baby in that hospital. And that's the a story I heard from my own aunt. So every family was allowed only one child because you know in, in China it's in China, Chinese tradition, when women marry a man, he the, the child will inherit the family name. So so every, uh, every family, if you want to carry on your family name, you need to have a son in your family. If you don't have a son, your, your family line was broken here. So many people, if they, they were trying to find out whether they are having a baby girl or a boy, or boy baby or girl baby, 
when they were still pregnant, if they found out somehow, you know, it was a girl, they were they were did abortion, and then that little baby girl was killed either before or some some even after they were born. So during that process, I think uh, at least it was an estimation, 300 million babies were killed because of this one child policy. And now you know what, after more than 30 years of this one child policy, there were uh, six imbalance between boys and or males and females in China now. That's I heard it's also some 20 or 30 million more male people than female. So now they are having big, big problem for this uh, male youth to find a wife because of the sex imbalance. And now they suddenly found that they are experiencing a huge drop in birth rate. And now they, they started to allow you to, to have a second or third child, they even encourage you to have a third child. So it's all happened because the CCP has always believed they had the power to decide everything and anything. And uh, so it's the, I think the arrogance of the power asked, uh, made them did all sorts of stupid things against the nature. You know, the, the, the sex of, of the population was naturally balanced if you allow people to have their own decision or their, their own free will to decide when and how many children they have, the nature or the, the head of God is balancing everything. But now they think they are better than God. They want to intervene, intervene with every part of your life. I remember when I lived in Beijing, I was once visited by a local, uh, you know, they have committee, uh, resident com committee members visiting me and my family and ask me what kind of method you are using to, uh, to prevent yourself uh, from becoming pregnant again, because I, well, I already had a daughter now. So I feel so insulted. You know, you you are asking me my bedroom questions, what kind of method I was used. So they don't have respect to privacy, to human rights and all. They think everything, including women's vagina and womb, and womb belongs to the, to the party. They control what, what you have, what you don't have. And I myself actually was also forced to, to, to do abortion after, because I've already had my daughter after that, I got pregnant again, but because of this one child policy, I had to do abortion. And because my health was already very, very bad. So because of this abortion, uh, I suffered a, a second huge blow. That's why my health was so bad. That's why I had to lie in the hospital for years. So I felt so bad, bad every time I think about I had to do this because I, I lived in China then. I had no choice. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry about that. Um, so how did you get to a point of you have your daughter, you have to say goodbye to the second baby, you're in the hospital. How did you end up getting thrown into political prison by the Chinese Communist Party? Yes, like I said in my brief introduction, after lying in the hospital for years, I was uh, posted a set of books, of Falun Gong books uh, by my sister and mother in Sichuan province. They, 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 they practiced that for almost a month then and they felt it was so good. So they were so excited. So they posted me a set of Falun Gong books. I, when I read those books, I was also very excited because, you know, since I was in university, I somehow always believed there must be a final truth in the universe. Otherwise the universe could not maintain its harmony and stability. So I always wanted to find out 
what that ultimate truth was. I read a lot of philosophy books and religious books and even books of change, you know, in ancient China to try to find out. I did a lot of Qigong practices to try to find out from, you know, human life or science aspect. So when I read the four Falun Gong books in one go, I think within two weeks, I read those four books twice. I was so excited and I finally felt I've, the book attracted me so much and they answered all my questions towards human life, towards society, to, towards the universe. So I, I immediately started, uh, uh, decided I would also practice Falun Gong. So I immediately uh, went to the park I found a practice site. I started practicing with everybody in the park. So like I said, within only one month, I totally recovered. My all health problems were gone and I went back to work like a newborn person. So, so because this practice was so good, its health uh, benefit was so obvious. Actually, many people who had a, a far worse health problem or even uh, critical conditions, uh, they all got recovered. So because this practice is simple, it's easy to do, and it didn't charge people any money. Anybody can learn for free of charge. So it, it spread in China very, very quickly through mouth and word of mouth. People eagerly introduce it to their families, friends after they experience the benefits themselves. So within seven years, this practice was only introduced to the public in 1992. That was the year when I gave birth to my daughter. So within seven years, in 1999, the Chinese government did a survey and they found that there were about 70 to 100 million people in China doing the same thing. And that number at that time was more than the party members. You know, oh. in China, it was a one party country and the biggest uh, uh, fear of the party, like I said, it's its own legitimacy. So, so many people are doing something together. So they, they were so frightened if somebody inside this group stood up and say, oh, let's get rid of this CCP. And because this group had so many followers, they could become, you know, a, a alternative choice for the people. So I think because of their own fear for its own legitimacy, the then CCP leader Jiang Zemin uh, decided to crack down on this practice. That's how I, as a Falun Gong practitioner, ended up in prison. Uh, I arrested, like I said, four times and then sent to a labor camp. To be so how, what did that look like? Was it the local CCP member? They came to your house one day and said, we're taking you away? Oh, it happened, yes. Uh, like I said, four times. The first time I was actually stopped by a police on the street and he asked me, are you a Falun Gong practitioner? I said, yes, because that was the first day when they started officially. Uh, actually, I haven't not, haven't, they had not started officially start, announced the persecution yet. That was on July 20th, 1999. And I, I heard from a fellow practitioner that the Communist Party could start to persecute Falun Gong. And I said, oh, maybe, you know, several months in April, we uh, uh, nearly a thousand or uh, 10,000 Falun Gong practitioners went to uh, the, the government compound called Zhongnanha in Beijing to appear against, you know, the, the, the persecution, the, the not persecution yet. In April, they arrested uh, 45 Falun Gong practitioners in Tianjin. Uh, because they, they, they went to a publication saying that that magazine published an article saying something very uh, uh, bad things about Falun Gong, which are not true. They, they made, you know, 
So they, they went there to appeal. They say, oh, please, oh, we, this, this, this practice is good. What you said is wrong. Could you please correct that article because you, uh, you tarnish our name? So, so, so in April, we went there to appeal and they, uh, they released those, those 45 arrested Falun Gong practitioners. So in July, when I heard uh, they would, uh, uh, like they started arresting Falun Gong practitioners in 18 different provinces, I thought I want to, went there, uh, want to go there again to appeal. But ever, even before I was, uh, you know, I, uh, I reached my destiny. They already had police waiting for us on the street and stopped me and asked me whether you are a Falun Gong practitioner. I said, yes. And they immediately I was took onto the bus. They have buses of buses of Falun Gong practitioners. When one bus was full, we were taken to a sports center in a suburb. So thousands of thousands of Falun Gong practitioners were arrested that day. So that was my first arrest. The second arrest that made me think happened after I attended a private you know, meeting in, in a Falun Gong practitioner's home. You know, after the CCP officially uh, announced the persecution of Falun Gong, as fellow Falun Gong practitioners, we of course want to meet with each other to discuss what should we do under this kind of circumstances. So I was arrested for attending that such kind of, so to visiting a, a fellow Falun Gong practitioner. Uh, in her home. And I think the last time I was actively, like you said, arrested when I was asleep at my home, they actually uh, intercepted, the internet police intercepted an email from the internet when that email was sent out. The content of that email was a letter I wrote to my parents-in-law to explain to them why I still wanted to practice Falun Gong despite the government uh, persecution. So I, I don't know whether because of the, they have keywords function or theater or whatever. So anyway, they intercept that email. And because of that email, I was uh, given a one year labor camp, you can sentence a decision. By the, by the CCP. So I didn't do anything violent. I was sleeping at home and they, they actually, they broke the law by intercepting my, the, the, the email. And then I was, you know, sent to a labor camp. So that could happen. Wow, you, okay. They, they actually in, in the detention center, the police very frankly told me, I asked him why, why I was I arrested while asleep at home? He said, because of your thought. So, so that's not a joke. That is exactly words because of your thoughts. So I was, I was sentenced to, to one year in labor camp because of my thought. Wow. Now, so when we hear about these labor camps, what they say is that people will be re-educated and come out with a new mindset after working hard and going through the labor of these camps. Can you tell us what it was like to actually go through a CCP, a communist Chinese labor camp? The labor camp, actually, I'm doing a oral history uh, video uh, series now in Chinese language. So I just finished the part of the first day when I was sent to the camp. So the first sound we heard is squat. So on the first day in the labor camp, we were forced to squat like this with our hand, you know, holding our heads and our heads lowered down to looking at our feet and motionlessly squat like this under the baking sun for 15 hours straight. 15 Many hours? They couldn't endure it. They fainted away. They immediately apply electric bantons on us to wake us up and so that we can continue to squat under the sun for you know endless hours. I couldn't, you know, imagine how I managed to 
endure that for so long. And from the second day on every day for 16 hours from uh, in the, in, from 6.30 in the morning till I think 10.30 in the, in the evening, 16 hours per day, we have to stay, stand in front of our cell and also like with our heads lowered, looking at our feet, our hands holding like this, and at the same time recite out loudly the very insulting regulations of the labor camp. And in the labor camp, we were never allowed to raise our head. Even if they, when the police officer uh, spoke, spoke to us, we had to uh, look at our feet and, uh, and answer like this. And, you, and when, before we, we, were given a, we were given food or a meal, we need to kneel down and raise our bow and say, oh, please give me some food, some kind of that sort of thing. So there were three parts of our labor camp, you know, you can say career. The first is endless torture. On the, I think, third, second or third day, I was shocked by two electric bantams on my, on my leg, uh, all over my body until I lost my consciousness. So the first part is endless torture. They, they said very frankly, the only purpose for us to be sent to the camp is to get us reformed. Reformed means we need to give up our belief in Falun Gong. We need to think from the bottom of our heart that Falun Gong is evil, Falun Gong is an evil cult, Falun Gong is banned, and the Communist Party saved us from this evil cult. So endless torture. And of course, the second part is waiting to be chosen as an organ donor. So they gave us a blood test, physical checkups repeatedly, uh, and store our, the data of our blood type, tissue type, whatever, you know, medical information there. So if anyone in the US or in Australia or anywhere, any place in the world, then if anyone needs an organ, they they search inside that database, they find a match and they kill that person on demand so that his or her organs can be transplanted to this person if you can pay big enough money. That's why in the entire world, you need to wait for years for an organ. But if you go to China, they openly promise you they can find a match for you within days. Sometimes they did urgent organ transplant within 24 hours. So only by store a large number of people's data in that database and they do reverse match. Here, the normal match is, you know, you wait for an organ. But in, in China is, you know, they find an organ in, in a big, large data bank of living person and killed that living person to match you. So that's reverse match. So that's the second part of our labor camp career. The third part is of course, why it is called labor camp because they believe if they give me hard enough labor to do, we would be changed into a good person. So slave, hard slave labor every day. So after we were transferred to, to, to the labor camp, I think that on the 30, eighth day of, after we were sent to the camp. Every day we, we, we got up at 5.30 in the morning and work until midnight. Sometimes we, we weren't given sleep and all so that our products could you know, catch up the plane to uh, Western countries. The police never uh, bothered uh, to, to hide the fact that all the products we made in the labor camp were exported to, to a Western country. That's why we must make sure the quality is good enough because they are ex exported uh, products. They earned dollars for our great love motherland, China. So slave labor. So at some stage, people ask me, do you miss your family in the labor camp? I said, honest, no because every time there, virtually there were only two things on my mind 
One is how could I hold up for another day without being transformed or reformed? Another one is how could I reach my quota today? Because every day you are given a quota and if you couldn't reach your quota, you can't go to sleep. So after I used the bathroom or restroom, I dared not even to wash my hand because hand washing needs time. And I dared not to waste that one minute on hand washing. I must use all my time. We, most of the time we were hand knitting sweaters. So even on our way from our dorm to the dining hall on the way, we are still knitting, knitting, knitting while we're walking. That's how hard the work was. And this is for some American companies? Uh, yes, I think many companies from all over the world, but of course, most of the time they did not tell you which, you know, companies are we are of, uh, actually they, the neighbor camp, of course, they didn't get direct order from any Western companies. They get, they, they get a order from a Chinese company, but that Chinese company may get a order for, for a, from a foreign company. So somehow I, I found out that I was, when I was there, that was in February 2000, the labor camp received an order from Nestle, you know, the Swiss company Nestle, which made good coffee. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we, were, uh, we were given an order of 100,000 piece, piece of, you know, rabbits, handmade rabbits for them to give out as a gift. If you buy enough amount of our, their coffee, you get a little piece of, of, of rabbit this high. So it needs at least uh, more than 10 hours and 30 procedures to do that little rabbit with hand. And uh, they, uh, they asked, uh, I think the labor camp only get maybe some four cents of Australian dollars for one piece. And we, we got nothing. So that's why you got so many cheap made in China products. They may probably come from a labor camp who were you know, made with blood and tears by people, by innocent people like me. How can American? companies compete with this kind of low cost labor, cheap labor, slave labor. So all, every day in the labor camp, almost every day, we were forced to do this kind of all sorts of hard slave labor. So that's our labor camp personnel. And I, there were so many times I thought I would collapse, I would be driven into insanity. And I did see witness other people who were driven into insanity because they couldn't handle the pressure. And because the police were given the quota to achieve, they have to, like uh, when I was there, they, their quota is they had to reform 95% of Falun Gong practitioners. If they couldn't achieve their quota, they, were, they would even either lose their job or punished or, or not paid or de demoted. So they, and so they encouraged the other real criminals in the labor camp to torture us as, as hard, as badly as they could. And if those uh, criminals can uh, torture us so bad that can make us sign that statement to say we were gave up Falun Gong, they will be released uh, ahead of time. And if they beat us to death, they, they were not, uh, be held accountable for what they do because you know if they can't achieve their quota we are useless people to them so it's not a problem to beat us to death so that's the labor camp reality in China it was I think on the first day when I was there I felt so like unreal, I feel, is this still the 21st century? Is this happening? And that labor camp is only about 20 some kilometers away from the Tiananmen Square, the so-called the heart of new China and where the Beijing Olympic 
would going to be held years before. I couldn't believe it. I thought I only read this kind of thing history book in the Nazi concentration camp. How could all this is still happening and right around me? I just couldn't believe it, but that was, wow. I think, worse than, than the Nazi concentration camp because I think the Nazis did not try to reform those Jews, Jewish. We were not only tortured physically, but our minds, our will were, you know, I think, ripped by this kind of reform. They force us to curse our own belief and to do all things against our will, our nature, and to, to transform really a human being into a non-human being without thoughts, without will. You are not allowed to have any kind of your own free thinking. You have to think from the bottom of your heart that the CCP is great, the torture is great, uh, because you are evil cult member, so it is good to torture you. You have to believe in what they say and you need to help them to torture your fellow Falun Gong practitioners if you want to be released. That's how hard the situation was in, in the labor camp. That's why so, were, so many people were driven into insanity. I wow. think any normal human being couldn't really handle that kind of mental, physical pressure. And everything was pushed into extreme amount of, I never seen anything so evil in this human history or in this human world. Wow, I thank you for, for telling us that. I. I would love, I can't believe we've already gotten into an hour, <laughs> but I'm, I'm shocked by it, but there's still so much to talk about. What do you think about coming on for a second episode? And we'll leave this as a cliffhanger and, and bring you back for the second half of your story. Cause I, I know you're a very busy woman, but I think a lot of people will benefit from hearing about the mental fortitude that it took to get through this problem. And not only that, but then to come out on top the way you are now. Um, I, I'm just so thankful that you would take the time to share your story and, and would, would that be okay? Would you want to come on for another one? Yes. Yes. Thank, oh, you. thank you so much. And what we'll do for now. So everybody listening, we're going to, in the description, link to everything that you need to get more connected with Jennifer and hear more about her story, listen to the work that she's done, read the work that she's written, uh, and, and just learn so much. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you guys next time.